This morning is Sunday. It is October 1st. Our message this morning is full citizenship. Uh, this will not be one of those politically correct uh, sermon examples that I have to give here. But there is a shell station at the front of our neighborhood. Uh, Dad, you use that shell station sometimes. I use that shell station. And these are nice men. But these are men from a Middle Eastern descent. Okay? And I want to be honest with you, because of the events that are going on in the world and the uh, religion of peace, Islam, and I say that with all the facetiousness that I'm able to, to muster, uh, Islam is a satanic religion. It's not a peaceful religion. It's a religion bent on war, and uh, it is an enemy of our true faith. But because of what people are calling radical Islam that is true Islam around the world, when I walk into that gas station, there is a thought that I have to deal with. And one of those thoughts is, hey, these guys are immigrated to this country. That must mean they value this country in some way. They've set up a business here. They're paying taxes and have become a productive member of our society, and I am thankful for that. But that's not my first thought. That's the balancing thought. The very first thought that I tend to have is, wow, if things get really difficult here, like they are in Israel, I wonder where these guys' loyalty lies. Now, as is common with the Word, as I began thinking about that, and then I opened the Word and I teach multiple Bible studies this week, God uses something that Darnell spoke to me. She said, you know, I never really thought about our citizenship in the kingdom of God before. And as I was reflecting on these Muslim Americans and wondering where their loyalties lie, God began to deal with me about where my loyalties lie. Because the truth is, all of us have dual citizenship. These guys come from a, a native area that is hostile towards this area. Now they've set up a life here, and the requirement from our country should be, if it's not, that their loyalties lie here because this is where they reside. Each of you was born into a hostile citizenship to God, the race of Adam, people that were in rebellion to God. And we have pledged when we were born a second time, born again, new citizenship towards heaven. And although we might pay our tithes, sit in church, attend meetings, and have some investment in the kingdom, God puts us in position after position where he finds out where do your loyalties lie. What is important as a dual citizen is that we recognize where our loyalties lie. So I thought we'd look at this. Turn to Hebrews 11. Is that all right with y'all? Is this a subject you're interested in or should we just go home? Is that all right? I can feel the Kensons nodding yes through the uh, camera there. What is Hebrews 11 called usually? The Faith Hall of Fame. Not a bad place to have your name listed, is it? Out of the Faith Hall of Fame, whose name is the most prominent? Abraham. Abraham means father of many nations. He was an exalted father, but when God put His Ruach HaKodesh in Abraham, the Ha, Abraham, comes from Abram. He put the H-A in his name. He changed his name from exalted father to father of many nations. Your calling might be to be a good mechanic, but when God's Spirit is in you, anointing you to be a good mechanic, you become a great mechanic. 
Abraham was called to be an exalted father, but God changed his name, put his anointing on him to become the father of many nations, and he has. I want you to look at Abraham's attitude, though. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Boy, that's saying something just to start. He received a call, and what did he do? He obeyed and went. Why didn't it say he believed? He began to pray. Began to read his hymnal and attend Sunday school. God spoke, he obeyed, and went. Even though he did not know where he was going. How about that? Steve Darnell, I want you to set off on a trip. They obey, they get in the car, and they begin to drive. And then say, okay, Lord, where? Can you imagine? That's trust, isn't it? How many times has God spoken to you and told you to do something, but until He lined up the details, you were quite unwilling? You know what that means? It means that you're fighting with God for who is the leader in your life. I do it every day. (laughs) That wrestling match occurs every day. But the more I become conscious of His kingdom and what it means, the less I tend to argue with Him because He's God in my life. By faith, He made His home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. He was looking forward to a city that had foundations and whose architect and builder was God. Abraham wandered around this planet in temporary dwellings, tents, waiting for God to tell him which way to walk every day because he was looking forward to a city, a grouping of people under the dominion of a leader, to arrive that had been designed, architect, and built by God. Guys, there's so much for us to learn from this. There is a kingdom that Jesus preached about. We're going to look at what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven or in the kingdom of God. The church became very Hellenized after the year 140. It means that the Greek influences were so heavy in the church that it distorted the Jewish roots and foundations of the kingdom of God. So that when we say kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, we have been pre-programmed from the age of Judah forward to think that we're talking about a place somewhere else. To talk about somewhere where God alone dwells and that you go to be with Him there and that you'll live there for an eternity. This is not at all what the Bible teaches. It's a small, small part of what the Bible teaches. So I thought we would look at that. But right now, like Abraham, you are in a tent. Did you know that? What is your tent? 2 Corinthians 5 says that Lindy has a tent. It's her body. And that while she's in this tent, she is groaning, longing for something. Did you know that? There is a longing within every human being who is born again for something to set aside this tent. All of us have received difficult news. It's more difficult for some than others. About a young lady that we've been praying for who has gone on to be with Jesus. You'll hear so many different things about this. 
Some will say, oh, well, she's in glory. She's in a better place than we could be. And they're envisioning a planet called heaven somewhere else. I want you to understand something. Even at four or five years old, she was groaning for something. She was yearning in her inner being for something that her words could not even express. She was yearning to be clothed with a permanent dwelling, that is, the resurrected body. And now, she's one giant step closer to that than you or I. So I'm not sad, I'm envious. The people that I'm sad for are the parents that don't get to see their little girl every day. But she's every bit as real this very moment as she was a moment before her heart beat its last. In fact, she's in the reality. This thing is something less than the reality. We're looking through dimly lit glasses now. So we are travailing around like foreigners right now in the land that God has told us we will inherit, which is the earth, in temporary dwellings, waiting for a permanent city to be set up for you to live in on the earth forever. And the designer and builder of this city is God. Turn with me to Matthew 3. I've been saying this a lot, and I'm saying it a lot because I want you to begin to understand it. When we have funerals in this church, it will be sad, but the sadness will be mixed with a pervasive joy. You know why? Because we celebrate the life that people share with God. We do not treat death as a permanent thing. The Bible rarely, if ever, calls a Christian's death, death, calls it sleeping to indicate that it's temporary. It's an important thing to grasp the rubber of God. Our message this morning is about dual citizenship, and this is one of the many kingdom principles. When you live in the United States, one of the things that's expected of you as a citizen is that you pay taxes, right? We, none of us like that. I'd rather not. If I could find a country as nice as this one where you did not have to pay taxes, I probably would live there. One of the other things that's expected is that you obey certain laws, right? That's what makes you a citizen. That's why everybody's so upset about not immigration but illegal immigration because they're showing a basic disrespect for the laws of this country at the very moment they entered it, right? All of these things are political discussions and yet they relate to the kingdom of God in this way. When we are in God's kingdom, not in the future, but now, today, it being at hand, near us, in us, around us, as we obey the king, there are certain laws, there are certain rules, there are certain things that are expected of us as citizens of the kingdom, just like there are anywhere else you live. And because you have a dual citizen status, you weren't born in the kingdom of God, you were born in a different kingdom, you might be scrutinized even more so. Then, if the invitation went out to somebody else who didn't accept it, and you were the default choice for the kingdom of God, you might be scrutinized even a little more, huh? I mean, by your very nature, you're not fit to be a citizen of this country, and yet God's promised to remake you into a citizen of this kingdom. That's a powerful thought. I want you to understand the gospel that Jesus preached. Are you all in Matthew 3? But, you know, the gospel didn't start with Jesus. Does that surprise you? Somebody came who prepared the way before Jesus. What was his name? John. The what? 
John was many things, but I can assure you, first and foremost, John was no Baptist. Not only because the Baptist denomination didn't exist at that time, but because they would have given him the left foot of fellowship in the first week. There's just no question. John had a difficult message. It did not include once saved, always saved. John the baptizer came to break open something. In the kingdom of the world, it needed to be penetrated with a difficult, hard message. Something that would smack it right in the face and get the people to realize something's wrong and we need to change. We need to prepare the way for God's kingdom, God's dominion to be set up. And in Matthew 3, starting in verse 1, it says, In those days, John, the baptizer, the immerser, came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I don't have an extended discussion with you about linguistics. It's just not profitable. But in English, the word near means in close proximity. It means a little more than that in the Hebrew mindset that this apostle was writing in. It means more of it has come upon you. But by the time you go from Hebrew to Greek to English, what we get is that the kingdom's in close proximity. And it's still true. Right now, Judah is in close proximity with Bobby. That's, that's just true. He's near him. But if they were sitting so close that it was hard to tell where one started and one stopped, that would be the Hebrew word here that the Greek is trying to express that we get in English. The kingdom of God is coming upon you. It's trying to envelop you. And what does it require of you? What was the first thing that was said? Repent. This Hebrew word is teshuba. It means that you make an about face, that you turn from your own way and begin walking in this new way. There is a kingdom that is trying to come upon the earth. It's trying to envelop the earth right now. And what is required of you for inclusion in this kingdom is that you discard your former citizenship, your former way of doing things, your former laws and regulations, and you take on this new life that grants you citizenship in a new kingdom. The message from the very beginning, and we're going to look at this, I could do it in every single chapter of Matthew. I checked this morning, but we don't have that much time. So I'm going to give you several chapters of Matthew in a row that show this. The message was never, you need to accept this message so that you can go there and be in a kingdom. The message was always the same. There's a kingdom that is trying to come upon you now. It's at hand. It's in your face. It's trying to envelop you. But you need to get ready for it. You need to change for it. He said, but wait a minute, Eric. Isn't it true that the book of Revelation talks about a kingdom coming down? Isn't there truly a literal fulfillment of this? Yes. Once the subjects have prepared their heart and demonstrated that we live in the kingdom and prepared the earth for that, there is a literal representation of it that is set up on the earth. But that only happens when the people accept the kingdom principles here and now. John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. What you are hearing is that the King is coming. Start to submit to His dominion now so that when He actually arrives, you have shown yourself to be His subjects. What is a kingdom? I'm not going to write on the board. Well, I might write on the board this morning. What is a kingdom? A king's dominion. The way that we get this word kingdom is obviously from this word, 
What this is short for is for dominion. Anywhere, yeah, I spelled it wrong, huh? Anywhere you have a king and his rule extends, we have a kingdom. You can have kingdoms within kingdoms. You can have uh, a whole serfdom and a whole uh, chivalrous system based on people, a feudal system is what I'm trying to, to say, where you have kingdoms within kingdoms. What God is telling us is that there is a king coming. His dominion starts in your life. And when you start to accept His principles, you are a people being prepared for His kingdom. It's upon you. It's near you. That was the gospel message. Have you ever heard that we need to go preach Jesus to uh, everybody in the 1040 window so that Jesus can return? We need to go say, repent, believe Jesus, that He died and resurrected so that you can go to heaven. That is not the message of the kingdom. That is not the message that John the Baptist prepared the way for. I'm going to show you that's not the message that Jesus preached Himself or He sent out the twelve to preach or that He sent out the seventy-two to preach. That was not the message. Believe that you're a sinner. Believe on Jesus. Repent and go to heaven. That was never the message. It's part of the message. The message always started with the words, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is upon you. But because by the time we get this in English, one of the Gospels translates it, the kingdom of heaven is upon you, we see it as someplace somewhere else instead of the king who is in heaven's dominion is in your face. Right here, you're being confronted with a decision. These Muslim Americans at the gas station, how do I know whether or not they're loyal to this country? Well, when we're in a situation where they have the opportunity to show loyalty or disloyalty, I can observe it from their actions. Would their words mean very much to you? All right. Now, I know this is not politically correct, but it is very much in our face right now. If Ahmed from the gas station, and I think his name is actually Ahmed, so I'm not trying to be any more racial than it already sounds like I'm being, shows up here and he's got on a backpack and he's sweating nervous, nervously. Is that the right word? And he's looking at you with shifty, beady eyes. Do you not have a thought that you wonder what's in the backpack? How will you know? By the way he acts, right? By what he does. How are you any different? You have dual citizenship. You were born with a loyalty towards this world's basic principles. This world's decaying principles. And when we're in a situation where our loyalty to the kingdom is challenged, we have an opportunity to show ourselves as citizens of God's kingdom recognizing His dominion or citizens of the kingdom of humanity recognizing man's dominion. What do we do? Well, that shows whether or not we're subjects of the king, doesn't it? As I was studying, I found out that in World War II there were lots of Japanese Americans that were loyal to, to America, not Japan. That was not a pretty time for them in this country. People who owned clothing stores and food stores and, and things where they were saying, hey, I've come here. I've set up my life here. I know I descend from those people you're fighting with, but I am now an American. You know what they did? They did things like put in front of their store signs that said, Go America, squash Japan. They did things like say, I am a proud American and broadcast it because they wanted to make known my loyalty lies with this country. Saints, I want to live lives that let everybody know my loyalty lies with the kingdom of God, not the principles of men. If you don't think that we're torn, 
Peter gets this revelation about the King of the Kingdom. It's you! You're the Messiah, the Living One! And Jesus says, oh yeah, man, this is the very principle right here that I'm going to build this whole kingdom on. Not, not two lines later, he says, look, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, oh no, Lord, never will you be crucified. He says, get behind me, Satan. You always have in mind the things of men. See, we have this choice that we have to make constantly between what is in our mind and what comes natural to us and in recognizing Jesus' dominion in our music, in our study, in our entertainment, in our households, in our conversations with our spouses that no one else hears. Is He going to have dominion? Is He truly going to be Lord? Or are we going to live with this dual citizenship and a foot in each world all of the time and our loyalty is still in question? Do you appreciate it as an American when you don't know whether the guy at your gas station in your taxi cab or attending your church really loves your country? Especially in a time of war. What if your sons and daughters were dying in Iraq? Might you feel more strongly about it? Saints, the kingdom of God suffers loss every day. There are Christian missionaries being butchered and raped around the world. In the Sudan, they're actually being crucified, being tortured beyond belief for the kingdom of God. Friendship with the world, the Bible says, is warfare to God. Warfare. We have to live lives that are honoring our King. For every reason. We want to sound a clear message. We want the world to know where we stand. Matthew 4, that's one chapter after three, right? Jesus begins to speak. Matthew 4, look at verse 17. This is Jesus who has begun preaching. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow Me, Jesus said. I will make you fishers of men. What did they go preach? What was He making them fishers of men for? He was going forth teaching men, the kingdom is upon you. It's near you. You need to get ready for it. You need to change your life and act as if you're living in the king's dominion. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. Turn one chapter to Matthew 5. Bet you've heard these all of your life. This is called the Beatitudes. Right? Beatitudes, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. Listen to these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs... What's next? Is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you still have in your mind kingdom of heaven is somewhere else, that will get abundantly clear before we're done. I'll show you in Scripture something that is so absolutely irrefutable that it should lay it to rest forever for you. Okay? But I'm going to show you these in order, so bear with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Skip on down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that interesting? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught a message that said, change your ways so that you can recognize the dominion of the King and be prepared for His coming and setting up the kingdom here. Oh, by the way, if you feel crushed because of this message, if you're poor in spirit, it's okay. Yours will be the kingdom. 
If you feel persecuted because you're living as if you're in the kingdom now, it's okay. You will inherit the kingdom. That's what he's teaching. Flip a page. Go to Matthew 6. 6, verse 9. Jesus, how do we pray? This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Come where? It's already in heaven. If you think that we are going there to enter the kingdom, why is He praying the kingdom come here? Why? And yet we hear it in our churches all of our life. It's a nice little American fairy tale, to be honest with you. Hey, look, just be a good boy. Put money in the plate when it comes by. Get baptized. Make sure you're on the church membership roll. Believe that Jesus died and rose again at least enough to acknowledge it, if not enough to act like it. And you'll go live on another planet. And you'll get snatched off this one as soon as it gets difficult. An American fairy tale. I was very happy to hear a national speaker a couple nights ago with a chalkboard just like this one describing his view of the end times. Somebody asked him, said, but wait a minute, what about the pre-tribulation rapture? He kind of laughed. He illustrated as clearly as I've ever seen anybody illustrate it why this gospel only took root in America in the last couple hundred years. I want the true gospel. I want to show myself to be a citizen of the kingdom. I want something that is untainted by greed, by materialism, untainted by complacency and a desire to compromise with the enemy at every turn. I want the real thing because there is a king coming to inspect his house and it needs to be set in a certain order. You need to live like the kingdom of God is something you're in now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is another principle in the kingdom. You did not get included into the kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom of God in your life, because you were righteous. You got included because you were forgiven. So you can't then, walking in the king's dominion, refuse to forgive other people. You can't. doesn't matter how much you would like to. That's the old citizenship. doesn't matter how much it feels good to hang on to some offense. You're not allowed to. You exclude yourself from the kingdom if you do that. Somebody hand me one of those Hebrew Bibles. I'm going to read you something on that note. Y'all go ahead and turn to Matthew 7. I'll give this right back, Steve. There are rules to being in the kingdom. Hearing the message is not part of the rules. Just hearing the message is not part of the rules. Listen to this translation of a verse in Hebrews. I want to read this to you. Hebrews was written to a messianic group of believers. And this is just one man's interpretation. But he was scholarly enough to include this in a work that is catching on for the globe. David Stern is becoming a popular author. Listen to how he says this. Hebrews 4, I know I told you all to go somewhere else. I'm just going to read you this. Therefore, let us be terrified of the possibility that even though the promise of entering His rest, His kingdom, remains, any one of you might be judged to have fallen short of it. For the good news of the kingdom has also been proclaimed to us just as it was to them. But the message they heard didn't do them any good because those who heard it did not combine it with their trust. 
Isn't that amazing? What a powerful, clear translation of that Scripture. Guys, I'm trying to make sure, because the Bible says to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, that where my loyalties lie is as clear as night and day. Whenever we face this enemy called death, whenever somebody temporarily bows a knee to it so that they can step on its head in victory in the kingdom, it makes me think. One day, night is coming when no man can work, Jesus said. Your death will come one day. What is your legacy on this planet? Will people remember you as somebody that had a foot in both kingdoms? Will they remember you as somebody whose calling, election, and citizenship was very clear, living every moment in the king's dominion? There are some people that I would be so proud to do their funeral because it's clear. There are others, even in this room, that I would be scared to do your funeral because I'm not allowed to lie as a pastor. I think about that kind of stuff a lot. You should think about that. These are serious times, saints. Christians don't live forever. You only have so long to do God's work while you're here. That should create in you a sense of urgency that a preacher doesn't have to gin up. It should just be in you. These guys are 16 and 17 years old. Yesterday, they were Judah's age. Tomorrow, they'll be my age. Day after that, they'll be Steve or Bobby's age. That's just how this works. Man's life is but a whisper. What you do with it now, your loyalty to one kingdom or the other now, will last for an eternity. Y'all in Matthew 6? We were supposed to go to Matthew 7, weren't we? Matthew 7, this got me saved. 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord... By the way, that's owner and controller. Owner and controller. That's what he's repeating. When he says, Lord, Lord, that word is Adonai. It means my owner and my controller. My owner, my controller, owner, my controller will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says that Jesus owns them and controls them and that they're His property enters the kingdom. But only He who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. You want to be prepared for the kingdom that is coming on the earth? You need to obey the kingdom whose principles extend from heaven into your life right now. The king is coming back for his subjects. Those that have been loyal make up his kingdom. He is both the architect, meaning He designed its principles, and He's the builder, meaning that He is empowering in your life you to live according to the kingdom principles. He both designed it, ordered your footsteps, and empowered it, gave you the strength to do it. Your job is simply to be obedient to what He tells you to do. Every day Abraham woke up. He's in a land he knows he's going to inherit, just like you, you're going to inherit this earth. Every day he's in a temporary dwelling to remind him this part of this is not permanent. There is a day when you will rule and reign. It's not yet today. But you're to act like the dominion is everywhere. He woke up every day and did that and said, Lord, which way do I go? What do I do? This is why I can look at his arrogant nephew and say, hey, you pick a direction and go. I'll pick the other one. You take the best land for yourself. That's okay. I'll go in any other direction because God... That's why I could bow out of every argument like that. That's why I could face down five kings by himself too without a problem because God was with him and he trusted him. Really what our dual citizenship shows is whether we trust our abilities or God's abilities. Which kingdom will you decide to live in? The kingdoms are raging. Matthew 7.21 makes it clear. You want inclusion in the kingdom of God? Do His will. Do His will. You wanted the irrefutable proof though, right? As if the Lord's Prayer was not enough. Turn with me to Matthew 8. 
Have you noticed that we've done this in each chapter? I want you to understand something. If I really wanted to torture you today, if I really wanted to stress you and see how many no-dos you would have to take to make it through the entirety of my sermon, I could do this in every single chapter in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of God is mentioned, being on earth. You understand that? And that's just Matthew. We didn't go through the other Gospels yet. I'm not doing that today because you guys are quick. You're a smart study. And so after this reference, you ought to have it down, right? Okay. Matthew 8, starting in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, He was astonished and said to those following Him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What does Israel mean? A prince with God. These are people who are supposed to be ruling with God. But not everybody in Israel was Israel, Paul said. In other words, not everybody destined to be in the kingdom of God on earth really acted like they were in the kingdom of God on earth. Well, how did you determine who was and who was not? By whether or not they displayed trust in God. So we find out that those destined for this don't always do it. That's the Hebrew Scripture I read you a minute ago. That's this Scripture. But a centurion here, somebody not destined for it, is doing it. And watch what he says. I tell you that many will come from the east and the west. What are those? What is the east and the west? The points on a compass, right? To teach you to navigate the globe, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what that is? You don't have an east and west if you're in space, do you? How could you? It's too many points. Right? That's three-dimensional. So on a map, we have east and west, don't we? We're talking about something on the globe, aren't we? Aren't we? Come on, you guys are smarter than me. Y'all help me out. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in in the kingdom of heaven. So is the kingdom of heaven going to be in heaven or on earth? The king is in heaven. His dominion extends and even envelops the earth. We were made to inherit this earth. When Jesus taught us how to pray, we were to pray that the king's principles that are fully obeyed there are set up here on the earth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, Yahweh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's kingdom will include the earth. Corinthians 15.28 even says that this is the point at which everything on earth throughout the whole universe is perfectly submitted to God. It's a place called all in all. It means that God's authority is perfectly recognized from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the earth. And then Jesus will submit the kingdom back to the Father who submitted it to Him. That's where we're headed. I like to think that your eternal situation is an extension of what you are doing right now already. If you extend a kingdom other than the kingdom of God in your life and into the life of others, like that rich guy who never cared for Lazarus, remember that? Well, when your eyes close and you reawake, you'll just be in the kingdom that was prepared for you. But if you spend your life caring for the needs of others, doing what God tells you to do, serving the least, loving Him, waking up every day, asking Him for His dominion in your life, when you close your eyes and reawake, you'll just be in the extension of the kingdom you were already prepared for. Let's get out of our mind that God is some kind of cruel judge. How could a loving God send somebody to hell? Because the hell is what they prepared themselves for 
all of their lives. But they seem like good people, really. How do you define good? Because the Bible defines good as doing God's will. It defines evil as anything that is not God's will. When you do something, no matter how good-intentioned, that God did not want you to do, you've become a God to yourself and a rebellious force to God in rebellion to Him. i got two boys. Those of you that know me know I demand obedience from them. There is punishment in place when there's not because I love them. They can think that it is a fantastic idea to throw knives at one another because it's fun and they're boys. And I got the kind that would do that. Right? They've been known to tie each other up, practice nice mixed martial arts type moves on each other because it seems good to them. That's just in them. They're boys. And I'm glad. I'm glad I don't have the kind of boys that like to play with flowers, you know. Nothing wrong with playing with flowers, but it's clear that they're boys. Having said that, as good of an idea as it seems to them, if it's not what Dad has said that they are to be doing, it is sin. The English word sin is an archery term. It means to miss the target for which you were aimed at. The degree to which you missed the bullseye was called your degree of sin. Bobby and Craig are probably the only two in here that can throw and hit the bullseye. They've had some practice. That's not sinning. Hitting the mark. When you miss the mark, it's sin. I want to hit the mark with all of my heart. That's what I want to do is hit that mark. How does it happen? You need to be cognizant of your citizenship. Is it clear that the citizenship is in a kingdom that started in heaven but extends to the earth? That is the gospel, guys. You go back and look. When he sends out the twelve, that's what he tells them to preach. When he sends out the seventy-two, that's what he tells them to preach. Throughout the book of Acts, when they are preaching, they are preaching about the kingdom of God that they are included in at the resurrection. Constantly. It's what Paul was on trial for. you just got to go back and look. The Hellenization that has occurred in the church is ruining the church. It causes us to make up our own fanciful ideas. Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. And Judaism was like an older brother keeping us grounded in the Hebrew prophecies. You know, Jesus had two donkeys that He rode in on on the uh, triumphal entry. Did you all know that? There was the mother donkey and then there was the, the foal. He actually sat on the younger of the two. But they were tethered together. You know why you tethered a young donkey to an older donkey? Donkeys are notoriously stubborn, just like human beings. And the way that you trained them was when you had one trained to walk in a certain way, you could tie the other one to it. And as the older obeyed the command, the younger learned to follow. This was a very good picture of the way God's glory would ride upon the Hebrew of Hebrew people, the Jews, and upon their younger sibling, this new entity, this mixture And they were intended to be tethered together that we would learn when we wanted to step out of place from following the older's example. The problem with the church is we cut the tether. Ironically enough, and I won't teach all of this today, it was around A.D. 138 that a guy named Bar Kokhba put all of the Messianic believers in an awkward position because they were in a situation where their dual citizenship created a problem. They were citizens of Israel in the natural They were in love with a Jewish king that they called their Messiah. So they were citizens in the kingdom of heaven as well. 
And the problem is, the Romans are coming in to crush Israel under a guy named Hadrian. Hadrian had promised to rebuild the temple. I bet y'all didn't know that, did you? Hadrian had promised to rebuild the temple much like God used other ungodly rulers in the past to rebuild the temple. That's how we got Zerubbabel's temple that was later modified by Herod. But he reneged, renegotiated. He renegotiated. And when he did that, this upset the Jews so badly that they began to revolt. This is called the Second Jewish Revolt. And as they revolted, Rome sent in more and more and more legions to come in and crush these Jews. Now, let's, let's picture yourself. You are a citizen in the natural of Israel. And you are also a citizen of the kingdom of God by way of Yeshua, the Messiah. Right? One of your fellow Israelites named Bar Kokoba, son of Kokoba, stands up and says, I am the Messiah and I will deliver us from Rome. And the rabbis come out and say, He is! He is the Messiah! Now you in the natural are a member of their clan, loving Israel, willing to fight for Israel. But to be included in this army means that you're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and accepting Bar Kokhba. What a horrible position. If you choose not to fight, people will see you as traitorous, part of the advancing Roman army. If you choose to fight... Your citizenship in heaven is in question. What do you do? They listened to the words of Jesus and they fled to the hills when they saw the Roman army advancing. Just like Matthew 24 says today. The Jewish nation saw them as traitors. And for the first time, we have a schism in the church. People like Paul are no longer welcomed in synagogues to begin to open the books and teach. For the first time, we're no longer a sect within Judaism. We're a brand new religion called Christians. No longer are all of the apostles and all of the leaders of the church Jewish. They're slowly increasingly Greek with their Greek ideas. Do you know what the Greeks taught about the afterlife? It was in some other place. Not on the earth. Everything you could touch, everything that was temporal was bad. Everything that was unseen was good. The Jews never taught this. And it began to corrupt our church councils. The height of its corruptions, Rome actually took over the church. You can see the fruit of that today. Over 200,000 Christians burned at the stake for their belief in the Word of God between the year 1550 and 1750. Over 200,000 by the church. By the church that was Hellenized, emphasis on the first four letters, and then Romanized by that Roman spirit, no longer resembled the church. They said, well, that was them. I don't want to do the same thing. I don't want enough foreign material to come into our faith that what we're practicing is not the faith of the Bible. I want the truth, don't you? Let's talk about your citizenship for a minute. In Micah 2.12, from Matthew, you'll want to hang a left. You'll pass up Malachi and pass up Habakkuk and Nahum and you are to get to Micah. If you're in the Thompson chain and you're looking for Micah, It's on page 1032. In Micah, something was promised to the people of Israel. This promise extends to us. It's verse 13. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them. The Lord at their head. There's two people pictured in this prophecy. 
One who goes and breaks open the way. And then one who is a king and the Lord who passes through at the head of all of the people. John the Baptist came preaching a message. Your ways need to change, nation. You need to change the way you think and act because the king's dominion needs to extend into your life. The kingdom is trying to envelop you. He broke open the way. He brought a message that they had not been ready to receive. He prepared the people for this. Malachi promised it. Micah promised it. Many of the Old Testament prophecies promised it. Then came Jesus in that pinhole of light that told everybody to repent. The king here. Jesus began to teach about the principles of the kingdom. And the chief way that He taught about the principles of the kingdom was living it in His own life. Words of testimony like, the prince of this world is coming for me, but He has no hold on me. The world will learn that I love the Father and do exactly what He's commanded. What Jesus is teaching us in phrases like that, or like in John 5, when He says, I can do nothing unless I see the Father doing it first. I say nothing unless the Father says it first. What He is teaching us is how to walk through this opening that has been created for us in the kingdom of God. How to live according to the kingdom of God's principles on earth now. John the Baptist broke open the way and Jesus walked through as our example, as our King at the head of the people, showing us how to walk. Watch out for that hole. Watch out for this. Duck under that branch. You need to walk like this. And now we're following Him. Turn with me to Luke. Now Luke covers the same Scripture. Luke 16. It'd be a whole lot easier just to say, believe and I sing some domino song and make a sign of a cross on your head and throw some water at you, wouldn't it? But then I wouldn't want to spend an eternity with people like that. I mean, I could grind up some ashes and put them on your forehead if that's really what you want. I can go get a whole box of saltine crackers and you can eat till your heart's content and call it Jesus if that's really what you want. But that's not at all what the Bible teaches. So easy when we're talking about somebody else. It's so hard when you think about each day in your life when your loyalty is in question. It's not about what we believe, saints. It's about what we do. Y'all in Luke 16? In Luke 16? How about that? The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. John was the first one to say, hey, the kingdom that's been waiting for, the kingdom that the earth's been yearning for, it's here. Repent. Get ready for it. Live in it. He's the first one to do that. Now, and everyone is forcing his way into it. What do you mean forcing his way into it? I'm confident that in Adam Ainsworth's life, the kingdom's principles are working. But it takes in every situation a very forceful person inwardly, empowered by the Spirit of God to say, I could do this here. That's what I want to do. It's what's in me. It's what I would have done all my life up until this point. But now, now that I'm in the King's dominion, now that He is my Lord and I'm His subject, I will make myself do this. There's no compromise in me. And I'm confident that He makes that choice on a regular basis. I do too. One of the first times I met Keith, we were in a prayer meeting and he described a situation where the drawing of his heart was towards the old citizenship. And he was praying for the strength to be a forceful man, 
forcing His way into the kingdom in this way. Praise God, that's how we get strong. That's what we do. Saints, to stick our head in the sand and say, oh, we're just old sinners, just believe on Jesus, is a ridiculous fairy tale. It takes forceful men and women to enter the kingdom. Say, so, well, how? What does that mean? The old King James translation of this was so crazy nobody could understand it. Turn to Matthew 11. Matthew 11 is a parallel passage to what I just read you in Luke. After reading Micah and then reading Luke, you kind of understand what we're talking about, huh? John the Baptist broke open the way. Jesus walks through as our head at the king, uh, the king at our head as an example. It takes forceful men to follow in their footsteps. It's almost as if the gateway to this kingdom is very narrow. Wonder where we got that idea. And that to walk in the other citizenship would be very broad. Maybe a way that seems natural. Matthew 11, verse 7. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind... I'm sorry, 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? Some of you have heard this before, but it's worth repeating again. In the first century literature, there was a nursery rhyme that you taught to children. Like if I say Humpty Dumpty, what would you think the next words are? Sat on the wall. There you go. Devin is a Humpty Dumpty scholar, baby. What some actors are to Shakespeare, Devin is to Humpty Dumpty. Quoted correctly, on time, and with enthusiasm. That's a nursery rhyme that we all know. Well, in Israel, what you were teaching your kids in the first century because you were under the oppression of the Roman rule is son, daughter. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are oak trees, like the Psalms say that the Jews were supposed to be, planted by cool streams of water growing in righteousness and strength. And an oak tree will resist wind. It will resist the storm. It will resist oppression of every kind. But because it is so strong, sometimes it breaks. They were teaching their children. They were preparing them, telling them how to count the cost. Sometimes for your convictions, you suffer loss. Mandy, is that true? Yeah, you stand up when others shut up and you can lose your job. You step out to defend a widow somebody who's fatherless, you might get shot. God does not promise you that there will be no consequences. He simply says, I am your king. Will you follow me? Where would He not go for us? Where has He not already gone? They stabbed Him, didn't they? They nailed Him to a tree, didn't they? He went all the way to death for you. Now, what's required of you? Well, this free gift costs you everything. You have to be willing to go to the point of death with Him, for Him, because our citizenship is with Him, following Him. The oak tree would sometimes suffer, but the reed, the reed just bent with every wind of doctrine, every which way. Oh, Alexander's in power. Great, great is Alexander. Oh, Augustus is in power. Great is Augustus. You want me to eat a pig's flesh? I'll eat a pig's flesh. Even though God said didn't do it. You know, whatever, the reed would bend any which way to survive. And in the end, it'll lose its life. But what you see is that it prospers through storms. 
And he said, what did you expect to see about John? He's the one that broke open the way of the kingdom. What did you expect to see? Did you expect to see some mamby-pamby, wishy-washy guy? No, you expected to see something strong, something with conviction that would be willing to break under the strain if it had to. Why would he say that about John? Because in a few short weeks, they're going to cut off John's head for the things that he said. And this is the guy that broke open the way that Jesus walked through that we imitate. And we're so worried about what people will think. It's so hard to wonder what your peers might think, what your neighbors might think, what your relatives might think, or how you'll make a living, or what you'll eat, or what you'll wear. And yet God takes care of this entire creation, even the flowers and the birds, and they don't worry about such things. That's the heart of which all of those teachings of Jesus come out of. I can't do that. If I did that, I'd get fired from my job. Maybe you need to be fired from your job. At least we'll know where your loyalties lie. I can't do that. I don't know where I would... You mean you might actually trust God? Oh, there's a novel concept. The church is... Oh, we're full of faith because they don't know what faith is. They think it's when you want God to make you rich. Or you're scared of hell. Faith is trust God in difficult circumstances. When is trust really strained? The more difficult the circumstances. This is why Jesus looks at His disciples and He says, Upon you who have stood by Me in My trials, upon you I will confer My kingdom. He didn't say that to anybody else. Matthew 24 says, The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Better train for it now, saints. It's only going to get harder. If you've run with men and they've worn you out, how will you run with horses? That's what my stepfather, my, my other daddy, was trying to say here last week before he said. That's what God was telling Jeremiah about. You're contending with men and they're whipping you. How are you going to contend with all the other powers I'm telling you about? God's strength is in us. He can overcome any weakness that you have. There's so much more I want to say. Let me go to First Samuel. I'm going to have to wind this up, and I think I'm, I think I'm already hitting the mark. Here's a thought. First Samuel 22. You know David is an earthly king. David is a victorious, overpowering, awesome earthly king. He put down the enemies of God. He stretched out a cord, and every three lengths of the cord, he put them to death. I mean, that's dominance. Pretty awesome, right? You've read about the exploits of the three mighty men, right? i got messages on the Internet about it. You've read about the exploits of the 30 mighty fighting men, right? I mean, awesome beyond belief. These are God's green berets. They're His special forces, aren't they? you're looking for 1 Samuel 22, Judah, it's on page 325. I want you to hear where they started. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress... I don't know anybody like that. All those who were in distress or in debt... Oh, I never heard of anybody in that. Saints, I understand you have financial troubles. Who that? I'm not saying with the 
brothers and sisters about it. We're a very open church. I want you to share with the brothers and sisters about it. But if that becomes the only thing that you share to the point where we're fairly confident if you're given the opportunity to open your mouth ten times, nine of them are going to be four-mouthing it, that's an unhealthy thing for the Christian. You know what that does? It begins to build into you, into your reputation and into your life, the king's dominion has not stretched into this area of my life. You know what should be coming out of your mouth? Confidence that God is able to provide for you. Thankfulness for what he already has. And by the way, I had not seen anybody in this church miss very many meals. Nick, you've been to Calcutta, haven't you? There you'll see people that have missed meals. Most of the time when we're whining, it's about the perfume we didn't get to buy or the tires that we, for our $30,000 car that we don't have. Put it into perspective, saints. Get it together. Leadership on down. We need to live in the king's principles. He called to him those who were in distress or in debt or discontented and gathered around him and he became their leader. (laughs) David is the forerunner. Jesus comes and does the very same thing. He calls to the nation of Israel, to those who are called to be princes. I mean, that's their birthright. They're born as a descendant of Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. And their birthright is princes. And who came? The discontented. The indebted. And what did He do with them? He makes us mighty fighting men, saints. He teaches you to take the sword with either hand, to face the seven-foot-tall Egyptians in your life, to stand and guard what God's told you to guard and strike down a thousand men to let your hand freeze to the sword. All the exploits of the mighty fighting men are found in the church when we live in the king's principles. And he did not choose you because you were noble. He did not choose you because you were a prince. He chose you because you know that he needed you. That you needed him, rather. That's why he chose you. So when you look to your left or your right, The reason that person is sitting there is because at some point in your life you had the overwhelming desire to know I need God's kingship in my life. His dominion has got to be there. The trick is to keep that fervor and to let it grow in every situation so that you don't look like a Benedict Arnold. I've known lots of Christians that I could not count on in a foxhole. And I use the word Christian lightly what they call themselves is not necessarily what God will call them. Guys, we have got to develop a character that will follow Jesus even on the pains of death. Times will get tougher. I'm not an apocalyptic preacher. We're not about to move into a compound and raise chickens and I like my wife just fine. No Kool-Aid at today's potluck service. But what I'm trying to say is this narrow way gets narrower and narrower and it is only the forceful who make their way in the kingdom of God. Luke 13, 20 says only a few will be saved. Then you read why those few and it's because of difficulties. Deuteronomy 29 talks about citizenship in Israel. And in the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, there were rules. You know what he said? He said those who persist in going their own way are to be excluded. It will never be forgiven them. You can go back and read it. Deuteronomy 29, 16-21. He says, Those that persist in going their own way are to be excluded from this kingdom. What does that tell us? 
It is no longer optional for you to choose your way over God's way. You want inclusion in the kingdom of God, then He has to be your king in every area. He said, but man, sometimes I screw it up, I owe Him a debt. Sometimes I don't get it right. Man, I'm discontented sometimes. Well, you were that way when He called you. He's patient. This is life-changing ministries. He's changing us. If you think I'm screwed up now, you should have seen me when He called me. But there's hope yet. Every year that goes by, every year that goes by, He's being more formed in me. I was in a business situation the other day, and a guy's referring to what he thinks is a blunder, and he's probably right, in my life a year ago. I real confidently typed out with the stroke of a pen, if you will. Every year that goes by, I get wiser. (laughs) Now, I'm sure he had no idea why I said it. He probably doesn't understand what it means. Jesus is being formed in me. If I didn't act enough like Jesus last December, I'll act more like Jesus this December. That's my hope. His kingdom's being set up in my life. Paul had dual citizenship. Did you know that? In every sense of the word. He was a citizen of the kingdom of God. He was also a citizen of the naturalized kingdom of Israel. He was also a citizen of the empire of Rome. And he used it to great benefit. In Acts 21, verse 39, he's in a situation where the whole crowd wants to kill him. Right? They all want to stone him. And a Roman garrison comes in and says, Hey, hey, hey! Look, Paul. They're going to kill you. They drug him out and protected him. He said, I'm a Roman citizen. I was born in Tarsus. No ordinary city. Tarsus was the place much like Athens, that at different times in Roman history had been designated a free city. It was once conquered, but they had adapted to the Roman lifestyle so well. They had been incorporated into Rome so well that Rome, even as young emperors, educated there. I mean, Tarsus was no ordinary city. You might call it a secondary capital of Rome, if you will. And what Paul is doing is saying, hey man, I know you're trying to do what you think is right, but you need to understand something. I'm a Roman, and I want to speak to them. And that gave him the right to address the crowd. He used his citizenship well. Another time he's being, in Acts 22:25, he's being tied to a bench to be beaten. And he looked up at the Roman who's got it and says, Hey, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman who's not been found guilty of anything? The guy was horrified. He went and got his boss. And his boss came and said, is it true you're a Roman? He said, yes. And the boss says, hey man, I too am a Roman. The citizenship cost me a great deal. And Paul said, ah, I was born a Roman. Everybody who was there to question Paul ran out of the room, it says. They didn't dare to ask him a question, and this guy let him go right away. Why is that? Because in the kingdoms of the world, being a citizen in a kingdom means something. If you are an American and you can get to an American embassy anywhere you are in the world, that is safe haven because you're an American. That's not true for an Ethiopian. That's not true for a Libyan. That's not true for lots of people. That's a benefit of being a citizen of that country. And what did Paul say? He says, I was born in no ordinary place. I was born into Rome. And he shoved that right in their face to when, when it was to his benefit. I'm suggesting that in the kingdom, sometimes you look at your problem Hey, I don't think you know who you're dealing with. I was not born in the ordinary way. 
Mine was a supernatural conversion. I was born again. Do you really have the right to do this to me, devil? And you know what? You'll find your accusers run out of the room when you resist them because your citizenship is in heaven and they know they cannot touch that. You need to grab hold of who you are. Cling to that identity. Now, in Paul's natural example, he did that when it pleased him. He didn't cling to that all the time. He clung to the fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that his citizenship was in heaven. I'm suggesting that in the kingdom we do this all of the time. It's not being an American that makes you great. It's being in the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2. We're going to read these last two scriptures. So you'll turn to Ephesians. Tell me when you're in Ephesians. Who else? Who else is there? Nick's there. Ephesians 2. Starting in 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants and promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. There was a time period in our life when the kingdom of God was not something in our future. It was not something that was in our life. It was not something that you had the opportunity for. But through what Jesus did, John the Baptist breaking open the way, Jesus providing for you the blood by which you can be adopted and cleansed, Him walking ahead of you, showing you the example you can walk in, you now have the opportunity to walk in the kingdom. You were once excluded from it, but now you have the opportunity to do it. You know, there are people on waiting lists in countries around the world to become citizens of that country. There is no waiting list for this kingdom. And yet, because it is at times too easy to gain entrance and people have not counted the cost, they cannot walk in its citizenship. I'm encouraging you to do whatever it takes to walk in your citizenship. Look at Philippians. The next book over. The third chapter. Who's there? Come on, y'all. Who's there? Philippians 3. starting in 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, the Christ or Anointed One, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. We are waiting on a King from the kingdom of heaven We are showing that we are His subjects by living like we are in that kingdom now. Demonstrating its principles now. Having tasted of the Word of God, of the goodness of the kingdom now. Those of us who are ready for Him, He will include in His literal, physical kingdom when He returns. That will include all of the benefits even of laying aside this tent and getting a permanent dwelling, the resurrected body. That sounds pretty good to me. The rewards are innumerable. That's better than a church garage sale. That's better than anything that I could imagine. It is worth it, saints. 
Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy of what it would accomplish. Why do you endure the hardships in your life? For the joy of what it would accomplish. I am sorry that we suffer loss. I am sorry that some of us will fall asleep. I am sorry that others will go with diseases that are yet uncured. Why do we do it? For the joy of what it will accomplish and the testimony about the greatness of our King. And I'll do it with a smile. I plan to read it and I don't feel like it's a use of our time. So I'm going to tell you, the prodigal son, the prodigal son's problem, if you read closely, Luke 15, 15 tells you something. He left citizenship in his Israel, in Israel, in his father's house, where there was all kind of provision. You know what he did? He hired himself out to a citizen of another country. And before long, he found himself eating with the pigs from the trough. God happily took him back. His father happily took him back because you're destined to be citizens. But there are so many ways that we hire ourselves out to citizens of this world every day. In fact, if you're a Christian and you go on a job interview and you say, hey, I am radically born again, they will get nervous right away. They will begin to ask you things like, well, you know, Keith, imagine that what I need you to film is, you know, in a nightclub. Because they're worried that his citizenship in that kingdom might cause him difficulty living in this kingdom. To which Keith can say, hey man, I'm in this world, I'm not of it. If it's God's will, I can go and do that. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not so righteous that I can't touch the filth that I was brought out of. People might get saved as a result of what he does. I don't know. I'm not talking about living a life that is excluded from the people around you. You'd have to leave the world to do that. I'm just talking about making your citizenship clear. Be careful that you don't hire yourself out to the God of this world or citizens of His country. It did not do well for you the first time. That's why you're here. You understand me? And if you were raised in this and you've never had that opportunity, don't be such a moron that you have to go experience Vietnam to know that it was bad. You understand what I'm telling you? The king of that country does not do well for his subjects. The king of our country will give us bodies that will never die and lives that are immeasurably joyful. We just have to walk in his principles. Stand up. Let's pray. We're not going to play the prodigal. We're going to play the loyal citizen.